what you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Wednesday, September 26th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Washington Post headline from today, Trump's attacks on Kavanaugh's second accuser show why the GOP hired a woman to question Ford. So the news is, the news that this is commenting on, is that Senate Republicans have found a capable, experienced, sharp prosecutor to question Christine Blasey Ford at their hearing tomorrow. Though sharp and capable weren't the first adjectives Mitch McConnell reached for. We have hired um, a female assistant to go on staff and to ask these questions in a respectful and professional way. Well, of course they hired a woman, and there is no shame in that, especially if they pay her more than $376 for her day's work. Why 376? Well, a senator's salary is $174,000, so per day, that's $476, and 79% of that, in other words, 79 cents on the man's dollar, would be $376. So if this woman is getting paid any more than $376, she's doing better than she could expect to from the male Republicans in the Senate. But the Post headline did tickle me about Trump's attacks on Kavanaugh's second accuser. And and he has said of her, she's messy, she's nothing, she's part of a con, a C-O-N con. Trump attacking an accuser. That is what the GOP needed to figure out to hire a woman to question Blasey Ford. Okay, okay. Donald Trump engaged in this round of vitriolic smears. Because he is an undisciplined, cruel, excessive, vengeful, dishonest bully of a man. Now, I guess you could look at all those traits and say, well, there's your problem right there, that he is a man. The man part is what we need to avoid in questioning Christine Blasey Ford. It is true that the optics of an all-male panel questioning Dr. Christine Blasey Ford would seem off to a lot of people. Yes, the optics would. But, you know, with Trump, you get optics, you get audibles, you get graphic, full-on sensory assault. My point isn't that the Post was chalking up Trump's horrible excess to his gender. It was more like, I don't even think Republicans in the Senate really need to turn to Trump as the useful poster child. He's really more of an actual child. They don't really need to reach to Trump to learn their lesson Just as Trump learns no lessons, he pretty much imparts none. He is a black hole. I think anyone this side of Alex Jones would know not to take the tone and tack that Donald Trump took with in questioning the second accuser. And even such forward-thinking, youthful male allies to the feminist cause like Mitch McConnell and Chuck Grassley, even they don't need to be told that. On the show today... Well, it's not the second accuser, it's the third that we now have to contend with, and that'll be the spiel. But first, director Nicole Holofcener, in such movies as Lovely and Amazing, is known for her funny, insightful portrayals of female leads and the somewhat self-deluded but maybe kind of charming doofus guys who torment these women. But now she's out with a new Netflix film. It's called Land of Steady Habits, and she finally has a male protagonist. But don't worry, he is a doofus, and he does have kind of a low-grade tormenting thing going on.
Nicole Holof Center is out with a new movie. Now, we put the possible name of the movie. It's called The Land of Steady Habits. But we put it through the Holof Center name generator, and we thought it might be Walking with Friends or Enough Talking or Please and Lovely or Friends Give Money. But it's not any of those. It is The Land of Steady Habits, which, do you know this? That is the quasi-unofficial state motto of Connecticut. The other motto is The Nutmeg State. I've seen the movie Land of Steady Habits. Much better title. Hello, Nicole. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you. So I couldn't help notice there's a guy right there in the middle of the movie. Really? Yeah. It's male-centered. Yeah, that Ben Mendelsohn. That guy's good. He's amazing. But for your last four movies, four, five, five five movies, Mm -hmm. Gandolfini co-starred in Enough Said for sure Mm -hmm. with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. But this is the one where if you had to say protagonist, it would be a man. Was that, I know this is adapted from a book and he's the main character. Uh, Something you wanted to do or something you just fell into? Um, kind of both. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I wasn't actively seeking a script about a, with a male lead, um, but I read this book and I loved it, and it had a male lead, and I thought, oh, good, good, that's okay. So, is that how it came out? You read the book and said, "Hey, can we option this for a movie?" Um, well, yes, except that my agent s- sent it to me. He's, you know, and uh, you know, they send me books and stuff, and I said, "I like this one." Yeah. Um, and so we shopped it around and got it. You know, uh, paid to develop it and then financed. That whole thing. Yeah. Do you like adapting? Because I know you work on other screenplays, uh, but when you direct a movie, how is adapting against writing your own thing in terms of feeling that you have full authorship and ownership of it? Mm -hmm. I think I've only done it once um, this time. So I don't know. I, I, I eventually, I think I forgot that I didn't write at all. And I, I basically knew the answers to the questions. Right. As if I'd written it, I became in love with the material. And, you know, I, I changed the book a lot and took a lot of things out of it. So there's some very much me things in there. It's a terrible sentence, but you know what I mean. <laughs> there, there's very much me there, and I you am a writer. You a lot in. Yeah. Yeah, me. <laughs> and I make a living Nicole as a there. writer. there, see, look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My favorite bit of dialogue in the movie and I, this is why I was looking for the book. Um, he's the main character is talking to his friend in a bar, and he's talking about the webs of connectiveness. I used to have this vision of my life was like a web, and these threads that connected me, you know. Yeah. And the, the more webs you could have coming from you, that, then the more important you were, right? Like, so if you're a doctor, you cure a bunch of patients. Then. Or a teacher, you got a million threads, you know? And and you would be basically irreplaceable, right? Because so many people depended on you, right? You understand yeah. what I'm saying? It's webs. And... Yeah, but it's really not the case. Come on. Man. No, it's the web. The web. So was that you? Was that your? No. That's him. It's That's actually in the, in the book, and it wasn't the Anders' line. Oh. Ben, it wasn't in the script, and Ben read the book over and over, and he said... Um, Charlie, the young kid, has this line, which you imagine once you've seen the movie that it makes sense that he would also say that. Yes. Um, but we didn't have the place for him to say that. And, and and Ben said, can I say these lines? And I said, great. And we worked on, you know, how to work it into the script. So this is why I was fascinated with it. You could score that differently and maybe shoot it differently and give a different feeling and try to convince the audience that these are, this is a true profundity coming from someone who's lived life. Or 
you could hold it out there that maybe this guy is being a bit of a grandiose blowhard in the moment. And I wasn't exactly sure what you were going for. And I think maybe you were going for either a little bit of both or it's okay to have that ambiguity because he is saying something that seems profound, but it's also something that's very, you know, tragic and self-congratulatory. Hmm. I, I can't say I agree okay. with that. I felt that really he felt that um, webs were being created without him. They were. Life was going on without him. And it, they were doing just fine. So in that respect, yes, he's a narcissist, you know. Yes. Because life goes al- on. Also, Josh Pace, is that how you say mm, his Pace. last name? Who's been in, like, a lot of your movies, yeah. too. Great actor. He's rolling his eyes. Yeah. And it comes right after he, he was hit up for money. I, I got the sense that it was, because it was in a bar, it was a little bit of this kind of therapeutic talk. It goes to advance the character. He is narcissistic and thinking about life. But I also think... Again, it's a self-serving – people say things for a reason and the reason that mostly we say things is because we want some good reaction. We want some good stimuli from the world around us. So I think there is truth in it but also advances the character as, you know, he's a, a little bit of a preening narcissist looking for a pat on the back like good insight. Huh. I thought he was just needing a friend mm-hmm. So you <laughs> to thought him more, more vulnerable, yeah. Yeah, more yeah. vulnerable. I feel he – I mean, but look, you know – you're the one who watched it, so... Oh, come on. What? I, I could I, get it wrong. Um, I could get true. it totally wrong. Or everybody <laughs> has their own um, perspective, really. Yeah. But no, I thought he was feeling pretty sad and shut out, and he knows this guy, and he knows he has the money to lend him, and they've probably never shared intimate thoughts. Yes. And, you know, the other guy's like, what are you talking about? Just drink up. Let's right. go to a strip club. Right. And um, that's in the book, you know, yeah. that character. Um more than what you're saying, um, Pat on the back. I think he really just wants someone to share his unhappiness with. This movie shows me that you like and understand men. You're pretty kind and forgiving to men. I like men. Yeah. It's yeah. clear that you like oh, men. Oh, that's good. I don't think that that wasn't true in the early movies. In fact, it definitely was. You gave grace notes to characters who in a lot of movies would just be a punchline. Mm-hmm. But... You have sons. Yes. Is that right? How many sons? And they're men. Yeah. They just turned 21. Uh-huh. Um, I have twin boys. That's it. Did that, did the fact that, I know, I think the characters, the the adult sons in this movie are a little older than that, but did that attract you to it? I, unconsciously, yeah. I'm sure it did. I mean, I have my terrors and fears as a mother, and, you know, this movie so- certainly explores that. Um uh, again, not consciously. I thought, you know, when I was shooting it and my sons were on the set visiting, I was much more aware of some of the dialogue that was, you know, in the book um, or that I'd written that did reflect my experience raising sons. Yeah, and I think all your characters, but as a man, I was either looking at it unconsciously or just thinking about it. But in Walking and Talking... I got the sense that the that the characters and you were writing from the perspective of someone in her 20s, you're like, what is with men? What is with these men? I'm trying to figure them out. They're uh, a complexity and oftentimes a gigantic headache. But now it's more from the perspective of a parent or a mother where it's not so much a mystery as it is a source of a different kind of emotion, a a, a worry and a consternation. Right. So right. the relationship to these kind of could be troublesome man boys 
has changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Maybe mellowed. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think that I, there's probably so many movies that are similar to Walking and Talking of, of women in their 20s trying to figure shit out. Yeah. You know, um, it seems, and again, not on purpose, that I keep writing about whatever is happening in my life as I get older. Um, I would like that to change. I, I don't have to do this. And I would love to ha- um, go back and write about young people. Yeah. Um, or a bunch of men or a different genre. Um, and, you know, this one, yeah, it's definitely, and, and also Enough Said was a lot about parenting, but also about finding a mate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those things are so prevalent in my life. And divorced characters. Yeah. But what, writing about what you know is the way to get to insight and truth. That For me, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some people who make terrific movies, and clearly they're not writing from their own experience. I read an interview. I read a, um, a review, and it called you prolific. I know. And, I just read that. Yeah. And I thought about that, and I would say industrious. <laughs> prolific? Um, I'd say, you know, lazy ass. I couldn't believe they said prolific. In 22 years, they said, in 22 years, I've made six films. How could that be <laughs> prolific? I right. should have, like, 11 films, I well, think. Well, this is my question. If the funding was really easy, you got it whenever you wanted, how many films do you think same. you would have? It would be the same. It would be the same. Yeah. So it's not a funding question. It's mm-hmm. a... What what's I'm not going to say slows because I've made zero movies, but what <laughs> what uh what the hell am I doing? What takes four years to make a movie or five years? I don't know, man. Time goes by so fast. There was a movie I was going to direct. Yeah, uh, two years ago, so it wouldn't have been as big a thing, and I didn't end up directing it. Um, but I got very very close, so that took a year out of my life. I've been writing this script for I mean not four years, but a bunch of months. Um, I've directed TV shows and yeah. a TV pilot. I've, you know, sent my kids off to college, you know, three years ago. Two, yeah, three years ago. Like, life. Yeah. I don't mean, what What the heck's wrong with yeah. you? What I mean is, again, back with Walking and Talking, I think I read that you were ready to go with that maybe four or five years before it actually went. Yes. But there was also a lot of iterations to that movie, and you kept working on it. Mm-hmm. Does that still go on? Do you keep working on these movies? And maybe do they get better because they take a while to um, germinate or marinate? Probably. I mean, I hope to God I would never have to wait five or six years to get a movie financed that I have to rewrite it so much. I mean, you know, I was single when I wrote it and then married and, like, pregnant. Not pregnant yet, but yeah. when we shot it. It always takes a long time to get something set up, no matter what. It's not like, okay, we're in pre-production. Um, so I always have time to work on it. But I, I haven't – there's no scripts that I want to make that I wasn't able to make. Right. Which is great. Um, I just don't have uh, inspiration frequently uh, to, uh, for an idea. Um, and I and I keep looking for one or asking, you know, what do I want to write about? What do I? Want? And eventually, something will click and last longer than a day, and then I write it. But you, they're infrequent. <laughs> um, and my last question is: There's one great line of dialogue by uh, Connie Britton's character, who was an invention of yours, right? Yes. That wasn't in the book. Right. She talks about a problem she had with her ex chewing. What was the problem? He chewed. I have to say that goes on in my relationship. <laughs> Where did that come from? That's me. Yeah? You have the problem with the person chewing? I can't. Like, nobody, if I'm on the phone with somebody and they're chewing, yeah. I swear I got, I'm going to gag. And everybody who's in my life and knows me really well will not eat while we're talking on the phone. There's a condition, you know. I know. Yeah. I have it. You I don't have, have it. it where I can't go to a restaurant or eat meals with people. That would be awful. 
Some people have that bad. You have it? Uh, no, other way around. Oh. My girlfriend has it based on my chewing. Your disgusting chewing? <laughs> Just yeah. the fact that I'm chewing. That you're yeah. chewing. Yeah, 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 you well. got to have smoothies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I'll take a liquid diet. Yeah. Just uh, give me the IV. <laughs> I-, I will blow the whistle on myself and say I can chew less loudly than other times. But I, there's some, you know, mastication causes some amount of uh, noise. Yeah, disturbing of sound waves and it happens. Yeah. By the way, so does it, by the way, strike you as, like, disgusting or on a different level? Like a weird, skin-crawly, nails-on-a-chalkboard It's more that. Yeah. Yeah. On the phone, especially. What about in an audio report if you heard someone kind of chewing as they talk or chewing into a microphone? There's so many, like, um, report journalists on the yeah. radio that I cannot listen to. The clicking. Yeah. <laughs> um... And the lip, like if their mouth is really dry, like mine is right now. And yeah, no, it really bugs me. I can't, I've turned off radio shows because of it. You're doing good though. I don't hear anything. From well, you. I'm going to end now, just in case I click and clack. Okay, good. Pre clicking and clacking. <laughs> Nicole Holof Center's newest movie is The Land of Steady Habits. It's on Netflix. Great to meet you, Nicole. Thank you. You too. And now the spiel. Julie Swetnick has become the third woman to come forward to accuse Brett Kavanaugh of misdeeds. Well, misdeeds is downplaying the story she's telling. Multiple gang rapes among well-heeled D.C. teens that Kavanaugh was a part of and that she was the victim of. Her lawyer, the ubiquitous mongoose to Donald Trump's cobra, Michael Avenatti, put forward what he said was a sworn statement attesting to Multiple gang rapes. Vanity Fair reporter Gabriel Sherman tweeted, White House shocked by Avenatti claims, privately, aides involved in nominations saying, quote, this could be the end of the line for Kavanaugh per outside advisors briefed on discussions. Really? You think? End of the line? Multiple gang rapes? These claims are so incredible that they just might be incredible. If they are true, I wonder what those repeated brags of the six FBI investigations could possibly mean. Let's note this, though. The new accusations are different in type from Christine Blasey Ford's story, which are different from uh, the story told by the second accuser, Deborah Ramirez. Blasey Ford's were given extra credibility because, and I talked about this on the show, they didn't bear the hallmarks of a false report. They, there were no over-the-top details. There were no dramatic scenes. And also, the crime alleged wasn't as severe as it could have been. The latest accusations have all of those elements, don't they? Now, of course, all the claims, all of them, all the accusers, could be saying things that absolutely happened that are absolutely true. It's also true that none of the accusers, none of the claims could be true. And it's also true that Blase Ford's could be true. Julie Swetnick's might not be true. Deborah Ramirez's could be true or not be true. You could have a grab bag. Now, the last possibility that some claims are true but some aren't, that has been pretty much dismissed by conservative supporters of Kavanaugh. Before the Swetnick accusations came out, conservatives were pointing to the second accuser's accusation as casting doubt on the firsts. 
Here's Ross Duthat on the New York Times podcast, The Daily, assessing conservative thought and assessing that the reports of a second accuser have convinced many conservatives that Kavanaugh is guiltless. So Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer published this piece in The New Yorker where a woman came forward saying that Kavanaugh had exposed himself to her during a drunken game that involved dildos or sex toys during freshman year at Yale. And what's interesting is that I think this camp has been strengthened and has grown because I think a lot of conservatives looked at that reporting and thought it was unconvincing, shoddy, and seemed more obviously sort of ginned up by a search for a second allegation. And so they're reacting to that by essentially hardening their position, by saying this looks more like a witch hunt. So it was the second allegation about Kavanaugh's time at Yale that hardened the position of conservatives, the position that Brett Kavanaugh didn't commit sexual assault before he got to Yale. Or maybe the hardening of that position actually predated the second accusation. Because here is John Podhoritz of Commentary Magazine in a podcast from last Thursday saying that Christine Blasey Ford's bargaining over the circumstances of her testimony, that's what really rallied conservatives. And her refusal apparently to uh, not only to cooperate with that idea or to appear, but to answer any questions posed to her by anybody um, except the FBI seems to have stiffened Republican spines in support of Kavanaugh and the idea that there's something untoward going on here and they should vote. If she's not going to appear, they should just vote and be done with it. Within conservative media, I have heard numerous expressions of the tide having shifted back to Kavanaugh. Spines are stiffening. This is at the same time that the polls show a different story. Now, it is true, the polls trail public opinion. But a morning consult poll, which was conducted from last Thursday through the weekend, so beginning at the exact time that John Podhoritz was talking about a stiffening of the Republican spine, it showed that while 68% of Republican men wanted Kavanaugh confirmed, support among Republican women had fallen to just 48%. Still, the National Review ran an article today saying that the second accusation, because it was acknowledged to be a hazy memory, a memory formed while drunk, quote, could destroy the Me Too movement. I'll read a quote. Sunday night, Farrow and his colleague Jane Mayer did a huge disservice to the Me Too movement by publishing an incredibly thin sexual abuse allegation against Brett Kavanaugh. So what must they think of Michael Avenatti's new client? Let's just point out that even if this new allegation doesn't hold water, it really says nothing about what Christine Blasey Ford alleged. And I have a good example that actually bears this out. Early on in this, uh, this saga, the conservative writer Ed Whelan floated a theory that it wasn't Kavanaugh who assaulted Blasey Ford in high school. It was another boy. Whelan went ahead and named him, and that story totally blew up. It was discredited. Whelan retracted. He apologized. But should we look at that? Should we look at an alibi that turned out to be no alibi at all? Should we look at an argument in defense of Kavanaugh blowing up as discrediting all defenses of Kavanaugh? Does that mean there can be no argument in defense of Kavanaugh just because this one argument went nowhere? I don't think Kavanaugh's defenders would say that. And yet they are saying that an accusation that turns out not to be true, if indeed it turns out not to be true, that should discredit all accusations. So if you hear anyone on the right talking about witch hunts or patterns of false charges, remember, you could turn that around to whitewashing and patterns of false alibis. 
So are we any further down the road in assessing Kavanaugh's guilt or innocence in this matter? I think not. But I would also caution us all to doubt partisans who argue that at this moment, the tides have turned or the spines have stiffened. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. The Netflix film about them, based on a state motto, is Famous Potatoes. TJ Raphael, a senior producer of Slate Podcast, look for her in an upcoming one-woman show, Utah, where ideas connect. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He comes from Kansas. Kansas wants you to know, Kansas, it's as big as you think. That's the actual Kansas slogan, which contrasts with Nebraska's slogan, Kansas, no one's thinking about you as much as you think. The gist, fresh air and fond memories served daily. It is the slogan of Colorado, but it also applies to this podcast. Well, Terry Gross already called dibs. God damn it. Upro Deparu Duparu. And thanks for listening. <laughs>